0: This is Bank Australia podcast On Purpose. Together with our special guests, we take you into thought-provoking discussions on positive change in our community and our planet. Traversing from the arts to the environment, entrepreneurship to human rights, our host Olga Klepova meets the trailblazers who put purpose before profit.
1: It could be seen as assimilationist. And I think that's sort of what Australian government policies over decades has been. It's been trying to force Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples to fit in to colonial society. What Reconciliation Victoria believes is that our society will be strengthened if we reset that
2: relationship. Australians have a long way to walk towards acknowledging their history especially the one they share with the indigenous peoples, believes my guest Erin McKinnon. Erin is a statewide coordinator at Reconciliation Victoria, the organization that already walks this walk. One of their initiatives is the Hard Awards that Bank Australia proudly supports since its inception. We started our podcast with me asking Erin about the idea that stands behind the award. You're listening to the podcast On Purpose, and I'm your host, Olga Klyopova. We are recording the podcast on Reconciliation Week, but let's go straight into the HEART Awards. Let us know what the HEART Awards is. Sure. The HEART
1: Awards is, is an acronym for Helping Achieve Reconciliation Together. Uh, and really, the awards were intended to showcase and promote the... Uh, exciting work happening around Victoria between Aboriginal communities and local governments and community organisations. Uh, we knew anecdotally that there were a lot of fantastic initiatives and projects happening, um, but that they weren't widely known. Uh, and we really wanted to create a platform to share those stories. Yeah, the Heart Awards really has grown from strength to strength. Uh, we we receive more and more nominations every year from uh, local councils, Aboriginal organisations, and mainstream community organisations uh, wanting to
2: share the stories of their work. I saw some of the categories uh, that you have for heart, the words, and one that attracted my attention was um, change the way we work category. And then I thought, well, I understand this, but there is one that's really important change the way we speak. I thought that the way we talk about reconciliation, about the First People, it does not—it it often contradicts the way they see themselves, the way the language they use. Yeah, reconciliation itself is such a loaded term
1: and has a lot of negative connotations for people and and for many Aboriginal people. I think because it's been used in a lot of different ways and contexts and misused. I think. But also because um, even the word reconciliation implies a relationship that was there and then was damaged and needs to be repaired. And in fact, in this country, we'd never had a just relationship um, with First Peoples. So I understand the problems with that word. Concepts like sovereignty, the fact that First Peoples in Australia never ceded their sovereignty and therefore f- some people's... Perspective is that there is an ongoing unresolved conflict happening here uh, between First Peoples and colonisers or settlers that has to be resolved in order to close the gaps and, you know, address all of the outstanding issues. When reconciliation is used, for example, just in relation to um, increasing Aboriginal employment in mainstream organisations uh, or seeing Aboriginal students have better outcomes at regular mainstream schools. It could be seen as assimilationist. And I think that's sort of what Australian government policies over decades has been. It's been trying to force Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples to fit in to colonial society. What Reconciliation Victoria believes is that our society would be strengthened if we reset that relationship between First Peoples and other Australians and really draw on the Aboriginal ways of knowing and working that have seen them succeed as a as a civilisation for 60,000 years and more, the oldest continuing cultures in the world, really to see that as a strength and a value and um, not just try to have Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people fit in
2: to mainstream society, but change our society. When you say reset, you you see it as a reset process for the relationship between the settlers and um, first people here in Australia. Uh, But wouldn't that imply that the whole previous work, say achievements starting 1967, then 1992, they would be overridden? I actually
1: think we haven't come nearly as far as what we should have or what some people might think we have. Or what happened in 1967 was just that Aboriginal people were counted as citizens and given the right to vote. We're the only Commonwealth country without a treaty with its first peoples. And I think little tinkering with the with the Constitution or with what's here now is not going to address or redress that fundamental issue of the unjust, unlawful settlement of the country. So that's why a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people had a problem with the idea of the Australian Constitution being amended to merely recognise the fact that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people exist and are First First Peoples. They would rather see a treaty-making process, a peacemaking process upon which a new foundation is built, a new uh, way of working that's really respectful of that relationship. Similar to in New Zealand, they have the Treaty of Waitangi and I heard the New Zealand Prime Minister speak recently about the importance of that founding document to the relationship between Maori and Pakia and we don't have that here, I think, until we have such a framework things like the apology to the stolen generations. um, These things can be seen and can become tokenistic gestures that don't actually create
2: fundamental change. I also have to mention for those listeners who are not, for example, from Australia and would know what we're talking about exactly 1967 when the referendum was held and where the absolute majority, 90% of Australian population, um, voted to recognise as you said, the existence to count the First Pe- uh, first Peoples as members of society. And then the 1992, it was Mabo Day. Actually, Mabo
1: was uh, the High Court decision that Eddie Mabo uh, was recognised as having rights over his land, which overturned the doctrine of terra nullius, which is, means land belonging to no one, on which the Australian federation was founded. Really important, but very quickly, the government of the day ushered in the native title legislation, which put a lot of parameters around what those rights looked like and meant. And they're actually very minimal rights, uh, native title rights. So uh, again, it's, it was really important, but it hasn't addressed the fundamental issue of unceded sovereignty and the lack of a treaty.
2: But the whole idea of Reconciliation Week is to celebrate those landmark events in the nation's history. And the way it developed the Reconciliation Week is it build up events around the country that recognize those past events uh, that had happened. If we look at Reconciliation Victoria, state body of the National Reconciliation Australia, what kind of events do you organise and you run through the week and maybe even throughout the year. Reconciliation for us has to be uh, seen as a
1: holistic picture and there was framework for explaining reconciliation that was released by Reconciliation Australia as part of their State of Reconciliation Report in 2016, which identified these five interrelated dimensions of reconciliation. Things like learning about and celebrating Aboriginal culture is really important and a valuable part of reconciliation, but so is truth-telling and uh, actually addressing and recognising history. And this year the theme for Reconciliation Week is don't keep history a mystery, learn, share, grow. So the emphasis for this year is really around telling stories uh, from the history of this country that have been in the shadows I think Australia is very good at telling stories from our past that are that are celebratory and positive and show us in a good light. We're not so good at being honest about some of the difficult, painful aspects of our history, uh, and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have largely been borne the brunt of the the most negative aspects of Australia's history. And I think it just adds to adds to the pain and the suffering of people to for there to be continued silence around that. So, yeah, this year it's uh, a lot of events are focused on providing Aboriginal people with a platform to tell their stories, share their stories, through, for example, cultural events, musical and theatre events. We know that Aboriginal people are great storytellers and they tell stories through music, dance, art, um, you know, in in a variety of ways, as, as well as through oral history. So lots of the events we're seeing are really that opportunity for local Aboriginal people in Victoria to share their
2: stories with non-Aboriginal people. I've spoken to a few people uh, from the Aboriginal background and I asked, what do you think are one of the major issues that should be discussed through Reconciliation Week? And what they said is, yeah, this... Art and creative and cultural events are great. But in fact, without real policies, without people representing us in the parliament, be it state or federal, no change will happen. We won't bridge this gap in understanding and recon- like truly reconciling. Uh, what's your take on that?
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, the principle of self-determination... Uh, is fundamental that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are given the right to make decisions about their own lives and what's right for their communities. That's a principle that's underpinned in the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. And even though Australia was, was a late signatory to that uh, declaration, we've never properly enacted it or, or really fulfilled our obligations to that. Again, it's it's the approach has been assimilation. Malcolm Turnbull's response to the statement from the heart that came out of the convention in Uluru last year was to say, oh, Aboriginal people have members of parliament in the parliament, so they're already represented, which I just think is just um, fundamentally wrong because, as he would know, members of parliament are there to represent their constituents from their community and not represent their spiritual or ethnic communities or, or any other views that they have, they're there to represent their constituents. What the Statement of the Heart called for was uh, a voice to parliament from the Aboriginal community to actually have a say in the policies and programs that are applied to impact Aboriginal people. The current Victorian government has made a commitment to self-determination and appointed a special role, Andrew Giacomos, to oversee that work in self-determination and part of that work is looking at a treaty process for Victoria. That's really encouraging. We're really excited about that and we hope that that will lead to some really good outcomes because I think what we've seen, even though the Close the Gap targets and commitment has been around for over 10 years, such little progress has been made because it's continually non-Aboriginal people making decisions
2: for aboriginal people that don't work and the thing is that's been mentioned over and over again in our podcast the episode related to the aboriginal issues here in australia that the lack of actual people who belong to this nation the lack of their representation that affects a lot any progress that can be done within this area
0: Did you know you could download this and other episodes from our website, bankos.com.au forward slash on purpose. We'd love you to leave your comments and rate the show as it helps us improve and grow our on purpose community.
1: We are coming across all the time, new generations of young adults who've gone through all of their schooling, 15 years of schooling, still learning the Captain Cook view of Australian history. So we're already trying to work with people who've formed views that are based on a very one-sided telling of Australia's
2: history. In the second part of the podcast, Erin shared her view on how national history is taught and why changing the national curriculum at schools could help reconciliation and healing process. Going back to that barometer that you mentioned um, that was run by Reconciliation Australia, they do it every two years. And I, I saw that since 2014, there was a progress in terms of how the general population of Australia accept, perceive, everything related to the history, nation history and First Peoples. But... What I was surprised to see is the historical acceptance. Almost one in three Australians do not accept, or otherwise almost 70% of Australians accept that government policies enabled Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and children to be removed from their families until the 1970s. What do you think, what has to be done exactly to, to tackle this area?
1: I think it's really reflective of our education system and it's a real frustration. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been saying for decades and decades and calling for schools in Australia to teach the real story. But it gets politicised and it's called the culture wars or the Black armband view of history, as John Howard called it. The challenge for Reconciliation Victoria in our work is we are coming across all the time new generations of young adults who've gone through all of their schooling, 15 years of schooling, still learning the Captain Cook view of Australian history. So we're already trying to work with people who've form views that are based on a very one-sided telling of Australia's history. I think until we really meaningfully overhaul the way we teach Australian history in particular, we are still going to be seeing this big gap in the understanding and perception of non-Aboriginal people about our history and about why Aboriginal communities experience disadvantage now. There has been a commitment rhetorically or you know at least in you know in policy that we should have Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander histories and cultures as one of the overarching cross curriculum priorities which is wonderful and it should be. But having completed a graduate diploma in education myself a couple of years ago and done teaching rounds in my local government pub primary and secondary schools and gone through teacher training. It's it's there there is it is not being implemented. It's not happening on the ground. Which I just find so exasperating and I can only imagine how it must feel for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community leaders and parents of kids going through schools, seeing the same things largely. Taught year after year. Having said that, I, I shouldn't be completely negative because we know there are so many fantastic stories of schools doing it differently and doing it better. It needs to be systemic though. But what does it take to implement it on like a national Pol- curriculum? Political will? I don't know. I don't understand why the progress has been so slow. I can only assume that it comes down to a lack of political will and. This notion of the culture wars that, that gets brought up every time this debate is had in the public, we, yeah, we have a real problem in Australia of, of coming to terms with our history and the, the, the harder parts of our history. It's, big, it's part of a bigger problem, but we've got to deal with it, I think, until we deal with it, as a lot of political commentators and people much smarter than me have said, until we can deal with that fundamental issue, we'll never be mature
2: as a nation. Um, But no one one wants to recognise there was genocide. No one wants to uh, recognise there was extermination, larger extermination of the whole half of the nation. That's
1: right. And so it's much easier for non-Aboriginal people, Australians, to see that the problem is with Aboriginal people, not with us. Uh, Paul Keating's speech in 1992 said... The starting point is to recognise that the problem starts with us, the non-Aboriginal people. It was we who took the children, who took the land, smashed the traditional ways of life. That, Even though that speech was made over 25 years ago, we still we, we are a long way from being there to accepting that, as you said, historical acceptance. And people don't want to put themselves in the picture. It was difficult for me um, when I came to Melbourne University from a rural farming town um, at 17, to hear from Aboriginal teachers the history of this country as I'd never heard it told, and very painful to think that was my ancestors. Five five generations of my family have farmed at this rural community, and prior to that, Thousands of generations of Aboriginal families lived on that country. So it's difficult for non-Aboriginal people to come to terms with the the parts of our own family history that is um, intertwined with this story of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island communities today and the experience, the, the disadvantage they face. I think for me, being able to sit comfortably with the idea that my life now as a middle-class white Australian woman the opportunities that I have is is a direct legacy of that dispossession of Aboriginal people by my forebears and those people who came across to Australia on boats boat people in the 1800s my my family came from Ireland and Scotland in the 1850s And the life that I have now is so different from many Aboriginal people my age because of that history, because of that interaction between my ancestors and their ancestors. That's what's difficult is that, you know, it's easier to just, for non-Aboriginal people to just, that didn't happen, the problems with Aboriginal people, they need to fit in or adapt or get over it or whatever it is because nobody wants to think that, you know, our own stories are part of this bigger story. And, and we have to connect with that, I think, to be able to move forward. That's the challenge.
2: Erin, and when you when you were saying this, well, very emotional um, period of life, I, I guess, and actually it's not a period of life, it's generally an emotional topic, I wondered what actually brought you to study the Aboriginal history and how how did you get involved so much with this subject?
1: Um, yeah, that's a good question. I think I had a connection to a sense of place growing up where I did on the land for five generations, and my my father and my grandfather clearly had a connection to that land. But I'd never thought or questioned about the history before what happened on that land prior and. I just was so um, caught up and inspired by the resilience I think of the Aboriginal people who were so generous in teaching all these you know privileged non-aboriginal students about the real history of this country and one of my teachers his his country is up near that country along the Murray River and the generosity and to help us to understand even though, it's been such a painful history of dispossession and loss and suffering for their people. It was, yeah, just very humbling and I felt um, there was so much more I had to, I could access and be offered to me in terms of my identity as an Australian and I really feel now I'm so enriched by having had these conversations and experiences and learning from Aboriginal people um, and understanding of the the phrase always was, always
2: will be Aboriginal land. And certainly, look, in generation, next generations, you probably would raise your children slightly different with more understanding. Even, for example, if we don't have this curricula, school curriculum where, th- where they teach Aboriginal history, what would you do differently for your kids?
1: Great question. Well, my kids will grow up knowing who the traditional owners are of the country where they live and the places where they visit. I want my kids to be able to know and be able to pronounce the language group names of the places that are significant in our lives. Uh, I want them to understand how they came to be in this country. I sort of went asking questions of my family. How did we get here? Who came from where? In order for me to be living here now, I want that to just be a natural part of of what my children know and understand, and that they understand that there were people here and have been people here since the beginning of time, and to know the Dreamtime stories and the, those creation stories just as easily as they know the stories of of European colonisation of Australia and you know, the other historical narratives that we're very familiar with. I think that will give them a much richer uh, sense of connection to this
2: country. Erin, and I would like to actually come back to Heart Awards because throughout our conversation, I realised how much this award matters for the whole process of reconciliation, recognising the small efforts by different groups, non for profit councils, can you tell me what's the general overview of those uh, finalists or nominees or those people who get these awards? What what are they and what do they do? It's really the finalists.
1: It shows the stories of non-Aboriginal people working with, walking with side-by-side side with Aboriginal people, listening to what Aboriginal people want and making a commitment to change things, um, to educate, to increase respect and... I guess, um, in some cases, to create opportunities for Aboriginal people. Their local stories, and that's the thing, reconciliation, we've been talking at a high level, mostly like, you know, education systems and treaty and national issues and our nation's story, but reconciliation is also about the relationships between neighbours and colleagues and school kids in the schoolyard in local places all around Victoria And that's where I see hope um, because these stories of the finalists of the Heart Awards show that there are people and organisations out there prepared to really um, take on this challenge and walk side by side with Aboriginal people and change the way we do things. We really see Victoria could be a place where all towns and communities recognise and celebrate traditional owners and the local Aboriginal history of places where we don't have um, a whitewash of history with just statues and monuments to war heroes and European colonists. Yeah, these these stories, the projects from the Heart Awards, really show that we can create this change locally and hopefully build that momentum when enough communities are changing the way we do things, then, then that gro- grows. It's a ripple effect, grows and spreads and... That's what we hope. There are there are seventy nine local government areas in Victoria, and many of those local governments have put in nominations for um, projects for the Heart Awards. So we hope that all seventy nine councils will learn about these finalists and and the stories and be inspired to t- take on projects like that in their own communities. So we continue to grow the respectful relationships that are needed between Aboriginal and non Aboriginal people in this country.
2: And Erin. Really interesting to know like, at least one example of what kind of projects got in the sure. final there's, list.
1: There's a really fantastic street art mural project in Shepparton that's a finalist. They're on the side of buildings of faces, portraits of local Aboriginal people who've come from Shepparton, the Shepparton community, and there's plaques uh, explaining who the people are uh, on the on the wall where the murals are. And uh, yeah, I saw one lady get out her phone and take a photo of the quote from Sir Doug Nichols, who was one of the identities, his portrait up on the wall. And it was a beautiful quote. And he said, uh, you, to play a piano, you can play only the white keys or only the black keys. But to have harmony, you have to play both. And she said, oh, I love that quote. And I just thought... That, that sort of a project can reach people in a way that a lot of other things are not going to do. The power of art and a visual uh, project just hitting you in the face like that and then hearing the words of those people, it's a wonderful legacy for and to have for future generations, to have these people there looming in the middle of
2: town who deserve to be seen and heard and celebrated. Thank you very much for your great work and good luck. Today with us was Erin McKinnon, our Statewide Coordinator for Reconciliation Victoria. Thank you, Erin. Thank you.
0: We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Remember, you can join in on social media by tagging us at Bankost or by leaving a comment under the track. Make sure you subscribe so you can hear our latest episodes. I'm Ben from Bank Australia and until next time, goodbye from us.